My name is Phil Adams, serve here as the pastor at Park Community Church, Rogers Park. It is so good to see you all with us today. We are going to be continuing in our series through the book of First Corinthians. Um, this week we're actually beginning an incredible, incredible, astonishingly incredible chapter in the Bible, passage of scripture for the next, not one next, not the next two weeks or the next three weeks, but the next four weeks. We're going to be in First Corinthians chapter 15 and we're going to be thinking about or looking at the resurrection the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us and for you. So a few weeks ago we had Easter. Easter here at Park RP is not over. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep pondering uh, the depths and the beauty of the resurrection. I think I mentioned this before a while back, but there's a reason that we meet as the church on on a Sunday. It's, It's not just by random or by chance that we're here on a Sunday morning. It's not because Saturdays got a little bit busy or we had to work during the week. The, the early church, they, they moved their day of worship from a Saturday to a Sunday to, to celebrate that the center of Christianity is the belief that it was on a Sunday that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Amen? And so based upon the, the, the practices of the early church, the church gathering on a Sunday has become a tradition. And if you are like me, you like to know why do we do what we do? And if the answer is that we do what we do because we do what we do, or because it's a tradition, it's, I'm not always particularly satisfied. We can all feel some truth when, when we hear somebody say something like, come on, it's the 21st century. Come on, are you really still thinking like that? Are you really still doing that? And for some of us, or, or plenty of people, that, that's what Christianity is, the, the, the past, dead religion, dead tradition a layover from a more more primitive time in, in human history. Bono, the, the lead singer of U2, uh, in his memoir, he, he writes about this aversion to, to tradition. When they, as a band, U2 started to move out from their origins in Ireland and they started to, to find themselves existing within the, the British punk scene in the 80s, Bono writes about a kind of fundamentalism that existed within punk rock. And he writes about the irony of having to function within what he calls the Ten Commandments of Punk. Number one, being thou shalt shalt know everything by the time thou art seventeen with a great and sure certainty. Thou shalt have no more heroes, nor accept anyone in authority. Thou shalt be bored, angry, and pretty vacant. I had to cut out some expletives in this as well. Thy thy t-shirts, thy lyrics, Will, begin, will bear a slogan that is to offend. And this one is interesting. Thou shalt proclaim the year zero and shall not honor the past because the new alone shall count. Thou shalt proclaim the year zero. Bono, Bono talks about within punk, the punk rock scene there being the belief that we each are resetting the clock. We, we each are starting our own personal revolution. G.K. Chesterton, if we move from the Irish to the English, he says something very interesting, though, about tradition. He says, tradition is the ultimate form of democracy, because he says, tradition is giving the dead a vote. He says, tradition is giving the dead a voice. And that makes tradition a little trickier to discredit, because I think we can, we can confront, we can be confronted with a challenge on one hand that we we may place a question mark over tradition 
and starting our personal revolutions may sound appealing to us at times, but we also long to have a place in the world, an identity in the world that is concrete and grounded, and we want a future that is hopeful and secure and stable. And for our lives to feel grounded in reality, there has to be an order to what is true. Truth has to be something. And particularly, truth has to be something that doesn't disintegrate over time. And we experience this in the longings for what we long for to be true of us. We want it to be true that we are loved and that we are of worth and that we matter and that there is hope and there is meaning. We want our worth and our value and our lives to exist within an order that won't disintegrate tomorrow morning or next week or next year or when we get ill or we lose somebody we love. We see order and stability in the world around us in nature, and so to question whether there is meaning to life is simply to ask whether there is an order to this world that stretches across time and stretches across generations. Is history a cohesive story? Is there an order to truth that binds one generation to the next, an order in which we can find hope and security and rest? And the invitation found in our passage today invites us to find just that to consider in the, in the truest sense whether the future we long for could rightly be found in that which has gone before us. Our passage today invites us to consider whether a truth that generations and generations have believed to be timeless might be for you today timely. Let's read our passage. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 down to verse 11, and it reads like this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray before we jump into God's word. God, we come before you today. And God, we want to feel the, the weight um, of those words, that we um, come here with longings and desires to be in your presence. And God, I pray that you will especially meet us here today. God, you know our stories, you know our circumstances, you know our situations. And God, we ask that by your grace that you would reveal yourself in power today. God, I pray that you would enter into people's stories, that you would wake us up, that you would shake us up. I pray, God, that we would grow in Christ-likeness, God, that we would have a, a moment today with you that would change us, God, and that would change uh, us for the sake of others, for our neighbors, and for this world. So we would do, this amongst, do that amongst us, I pray today. In your name, amen. This morning's passage, it, it, it begins and ends with Paul saying the same thing. In chapter 15, verse 1, he writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. As in church in Corinth, I'm writing this to remind you what you have already believed. 
Then 10 verses later in verse 11 of chapter 15, at the very end, Paul closes out this section by saying, remember, so we preached and so you believed. And so by looking at the beginning and the ending of this passage today, we know Paul's heart, his purpose here from the beginning to the end is that of seeking to remind his readers of something that he believes that they already know. That's how verse 1 opens. Now I would remind you. We ask them, what is this something that the church of Corinth knows, but at the same time has probably or notably forgotten? And some of the nuances behind what's going on here is unclear, but what we know is that for, for some reason the Apostle Paul felt the need to bring clarity in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we're going to be in for the next four weeks, to how key and how crucial the resurrection of Jesus Christ was and is, and how rich it is in its implications before for, for them and also for us today. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is explicit teaching that, that gives clarity and explanation as to what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for you and for me. This is a foundational passage we're in over the next four weeks, so don't, don't miss it. And to understand why this reminder to the church regarding the resurrection was necessary, we could start looking into the Greek culture that was influencing the church in Corinth. We could look at how the, Roma, how the Roman culture was influencing the church in Corinth, or even how the Sadducees, who were Jews that didn't believe in the physical resurrection, we could look at that. And these influences we might look at over the next four weeks. But regardless... Paul, before he, he, he gets into the implications and clarity around what the resurrection means, Paul first, in today's verses, just to, wants to make one thing clear at the outset. Before we get into the rest of the chapter, he, he wants to make it emphatically clear one thing, that it happened. That it happened. Paul wants to build on the truth and the reality of the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to life. All implications of the resurrection are grounded on it having happened. Paul is regathering the church, recentering the church in Corinth around this shared common denominator, around this, this fundamental premise. Because he knows, like we know, Regardless of what cultural influences that we're experiencing or the time period in which we exist, he knows that that which is most important in our lives doesn't always hold the most of our attention. Yeah? That which is most important in our lives doesn't always hold the most of our attention. Our minds drift. Our lives drift. Our walks with the Lord drift. And I think Paul senses his readers that they're, they're, they're drifting when it comes to the resurrection and what it means for their lives. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is seeking to re-anchor, re-center them. So in verse 1 and 2, he reminds them, as we've already mentioned, that the resurrection is not new information. If you're here at Easter, you'll know this is not new information. If you've got any muscle memory in your minds, can you, can you remind yourselves that the resurrection is not something that, that, that is new to you, it's something that you've already believed. In fact, Paul takes them back to a different season in their faith. A season, verse one, he says, on which they still stand. And Paul asks them and says to them, don't discredit that. And maybe you're, you're, you're here today and your faith is not as strong as it once 
was, maybe your walk with the Lord isn't what it, it could be and you know it should be, but what Paul is saying here is don't discredit as meaningless the journey you have been on to get you here. Don't discredit that you, you're still here. Don't discredit the faith of your past that you are still choosing in faith to stand on today. Rogers Park, it was no little thing for these original readers of this letter and letter in Corinth to have chosen to become followers of Jesus. Some some of those in the church in Corinth were the very first generation of Christ followers. Can you imagine that? The very first generation of Christ followers that had encountered the power of the gospel. They hadn't been born into Christian homes. They did not have grandmothers praying for them. Their lives had undergone a dramatic transformation through a radical encounter with Christ. And so when Paul wants to re-anchor them on the truth of the resurrection, he first points to their own transformed lives, that the resurrection was something that they had previously already not just believed, but encountered. Paul points them to, to previous encounters that they had had with the power of God. And so for us, maybe what we need to re-inspire our faith is not something new, a new sermon, a new book, a new church, a new pastor, but to be re-inspired by our faith in the past. Rogers Park, was there a time when you believed Jesus to be more valuable than you do today? Has your, your vision of him become blurry? Was there a time you perceived his worth more profoundly? And do you know what's happened? Do you, do you sense something that has been lost in your life, that there was a fire that has dwindled and needs rekindled? Paul's saying, don't discredit as insignificant an earlier season in your faith. Don't forget an earlier encounter you had with the power of God. Rather, Paul says in verse 2, to, to hold fast to it, to cling to it. Don't loosen your grip. Retake hold of it if needs be. Maybe to find the re-anchoring you need, you need to follow the arrows backwards, not to something new, but something old, leading to the peace and the joy and the hope and the purpose and the excitement and the freedom that used to be yours as an outcome of the walk with the Lord that you once had. Not something new, but something old. Paul then goes on in verse 3 to remind them that this concrete grounded belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they did not have alone. It wasn't a belief that they previously had dreamt up in isolation. And to make this point, Paul writes to them a creed, or he copies in a creed in his letter that the early church used to recite to one another while we read a creed today. In verse 3, Paul says, this creed articulates what is of first importance, what is fundamental. Yes, there are a lot of conversations that we can have in Christianity. There are a lot of conversations we can have about the church. There are a lot of complex issues that matter. But can we start from the ground up? And Paul's saying the ground, the foundation of first importance is what he writes in verse 3. That Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with Scripture that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. That's the creed. That's the foundation of our faith. 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. There are a couple more sentences in verse 5 and verse 6 that may or may not have been in the original creed. It's hard to know where the creed ends and Paul starts writing again, but there is full agreement that verse 3 and verse 4 is the creed that the early church recited to one another. And we're in the process of passing on from generation to generation, which states of first importance that when Jesus died, his death was not meaningless or ordinary. Jesus' death was for our sin, for our shame, and for our freedom. There was a substitution occurring on the cross for us. Jesus was paying the price for our rebellion from God. And this was being done in vindication and in alignment with all of Scripture. And by the fact Jesus was raised from the dead meant that all Jesus said and taught and promised and who he claimed to be was all being vindicated through the resurrection as true. This is the ground. This was the foundation. So if you're here today and your, your walk with Jesus used to be a walk on the beach, but today feels more like you're walking through a maze, can I suggest you go back to the fundamentals? Can I suggest you go back to the foundation? And if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering what is Christianity about? What is, it at its, what is it at its core that I need to reckon with? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. That's it. In those two verses, you can find Christianity encapsulated. But when we do then include verses 5 and 6 and 7, we really see that what Paul is drawing out for the Corinthians by bringing up this creed is he's reminding them not only of the clear and concrete belief they once had in the resurrection, but now in verses 4 to 11, he's pointing out that to veer off from the creed is to veer off into isolation. You see, this creed was not simply an articulation of, of truth. The creed bore witness to a community that had formed a people that had come together sharing a common set of beliefs. And to make who this community of believers even more explicit to his readers, Paul starts naming names. There's a lot of people sitting here and I could start calling out names. If I catch eyes with you, you start to get a little nervous. Jimmy's locked in. <laughs> Paul in these common verses points to many, many people that made up the Christian community. And in verse 5, following on from Jesus being raised from the dead on the third day, Paul says, and Jesus appeared to Cephas, as in Peter, whose story we looked at on Easter Sunday. Then it says that Jesus appeared to the 12, referring to Jesus' 12 disciples. Then in verse 6, it says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, as in some have died. Then in verse 7, stay with me, it says, verse 7, Jesus appeared to James. James was Jesus' brother who prior to the resurrection didn't believe in Jesus, but who went on after the resurrection to be a believer and leader in the early church. Then it says, Jesus appeared to the apostles. And finally, verse, seven, or verse 8, Paul says, last of all, he also appeared to me. And this is a long list of appearances Jesus made after he rose from the dead. And what's 
Paul doing here by listing all of these people that have seen the resurrected Christ? What's he listing them for? Why? It's common to read these verses as if Paul is giving proof that the resurrection happened, and Paul is doing that. But he's actually more so emphasizing something even more nuanced to the church in Corinth. We see the point he is making in the last verse as well, in verse 11, when Paul says, whether then it was I or they, we preached and you believed. And we ask, who is Paul referring to as they in verse 11? If you remember the church in Corinth, they weren't the biggest fans of the apostle Paul. He wasn't particularly prestigious enough for them. He didn't reflect well on them. And when Paul says they in verse 11, who he's referring to, he's referring to the teachers and the preachers that the church in Corinth did actually like. Paul is pointing out that they too believed in the resurrection. Those at the church in Corinth did want to be associated with, believed the same as Paul believed. And so all in all, Paul lists out all of these examples, examples of those who had seen the resurrected Christ and those who preached the resurrected Christ. Yes, to point out that it happened, but also to point out that if they reject the resurrection, it's going to be lonely. Because Paul's long list of witnesses to the resurrection make it clear to the church in Corinth that there is no other Christian faith. Paul's saying, look, there is no alternative Christian faith that you can join if you drift away from the resurrection. And I understand for us walking away from the resurrection, walking away from our faith, walking away from the church, walking away from orthodoxy does not necessarily mean a lonely life. In fact, for some, disbelief may look like a more relationally full life for some. For now, a resurrected life is lonely. And also, I do not wish loneliness or isolation on, on anyone. In fact, I hope that we can be a home for people that exist along a wide spectrum of belief. Religious freedom is live and well in Park Rogers Park. But Paul does raise a, a question for us to consider and for the church in Corinth to consider, which is, to whom is it that we belong? To whom is it that we belong? And our quick response to that question may well be, I don't belong to anyone. I am my, my own person. I make my own decisions. My life is my own. The problem is to not let others in to not allow others to speak into your life with any kind of authority or claim is a very lonely way to live. And to live your life as if it's your own personal revolution is not only isolating, it's impossible. Unless you live in a black box in your basement, we are shaped by people and culture and society and relationships. Even if we try and filter everything out, out and live simply through the lens of our own individualism and to let others in, to not be alone, inevitably means becoming a part of a community. Because here's the thing, every community exists around a set of beliefs that are held to be true. Every community exists around a set of beliefs that are held to be true. Every community has a creed. 
Every community is a community because of its own Ten Commandments. And so we are left on one hand with isolation or, or loneliness, or on the other hand, living amongst a community that exists due to its common creed. To put it this another way, if you have to choose, if you have to choose a path of faith or belief or a path of, path of disbelief, a path that, that forms a community around what is believed to be true, to whom is it that you wish to belong? To whom is it that you wish to belong? I think that's what Paul is asking his readers to consider here. To not only reckon with their own experiences, to not only look back at a previous iteration of their own faith and consider how that might give them direction for today, but also to look around and take into consideration the stories and the experiences and the beliefs of those around them that they know and trust and respect. You know, I think our faiths are far more intertwined than we realize. I think we, we carry each other far more than we realize. And when we are struggling, struggling with what we believe, I know I have found it an easier question to ask in seasons of doubt, not what do I believe, but to whom do I belong? With whom? Do I want to belong? If I could bring whatever faith I have and consider also those for whom I have the deepest respect, does that help me gain some clarity? And I think it's okay at times in, in seasons to allow ourselves to be carried by a faith that is, yes, our own, but a faith that is reliant on the faith of others. That's why Paul says in verse 6, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time, and then Jesus points out, by the way, most of them are still alive, so go find them. You have, you have questions about the resurrection? You, you have questions about what they saw, what Jesus said to them? You have, you have questions around issues of gender and sexuality? You, you have questions about women in a complementarian church? You have questions about feeling called to a city and re to the city and raising the fam your family there. You, you have questions about losing a child or struggling in your marriage or being a minority and a white majority or just where God is in your suffering. Friends, there are many of whom are still alive in this room. You can tell you their stories. And they can tell you what they have seen and what they have experienced. And their stories are not silly or flippant or crazy or delusional. They are stories that are sincere and relatable and reliable. And maybe as a pastor, I get a front row seat of, of God at work in people's lives, of seeing people process through what they're struggling with and how they've come through it. But so can you. Can I ask of us two things as a church? When someone invites you over for dinner, consider that they aren't just looking a friend, but to know in their weaknesses and in their struggles and in their faith, they're not alone. They are choosing to whom they belong. 
Your hospitality matters, but so does accepting the hospitality of others. Go to serve. Go to listen. Number two, if you have never had someone in this room over to your home or your house, do it. Try it. You might not like it. You might not want to do it again. But if we are in any way a community where the power of God has altered or changed or impacted our lives, then through sharing our stories and our lives together, we will be an encouragement to one another. And for some of us, a good next step in our faith is not to keep asking what we believe, but to choose to not go alone. As we begin to close and come to a, a time of communion together around the Lord's table, we see that Paul can't, can't help but expanding a little bit on his own story. It's very Pauline of him. He also is, is one of whom is still alive. He is one of whom has seen the resurrected Christ. But in verse 8, Paul uses a really interesting word to describe himself. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And the word used here, untimely born, is actually a very graphic word. It might be easy to kind of skim over and think that it doesn't matter, but it actually makes sense of this whole section in these verses. The term untimely born, it was originally a medical term that referred to the premature death of an infant. And this word, as seems to happen in culture and society, this word had become a slur. It, it had become an insult to refer to those who were deficient in some way, and so also was a slur used to speak of those with a disability, but was used just broad, broadly that, broader than that also just to demean and attack and belittle. And then we ask, well, why is Paul using it? Why is this curse word in the, in the Bible? It's believed Paul uses it because he gets called it. And so we ask, by, by whom? And we don't, we don't really know. Some think it was the church in Corinth who thought that he, he, he wasn't prestigious enough for them. Some think it was the, the Jewish establishment that he rejected. But Paul, in some sense, seems to receive this term. He, he, he actually chooses to refer to himself with this slur. He says in verse 9, As one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church of God. And this refers to Paul's life before he had a radical encounter with Christ, before he went on to become one of the most influential Christians the world has ever seen, when he used to actively pursue the death and the imprisonment of followers of Jesus. That was Paul's past. That's the life that Paul used to live. And so one further category of people who may well have used this slur against Paul were the families that he tore apart the wives of the husbands that he imprisoned, the children of the parents he'd been instrumental in seeing killed, the families he tore apart. And so Paul receives his past. He knows what he has done. He knows the life he lived. He knows the shame he carries, and he understands the name that he gets called. 
Then it says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's very simply saying to the church in Corinth, there is, if there is no resurrection, who resurrected me? If there is no resurrection, who resurrected me? Who changed me? If I was that and I agree what happened to me, what happened? Who changed me? But there's another way to look at this term untimely born. And that is that Paul also did see the resurrected Christ, but it was an encounter that happened later than most. Most of the the apostles, the disciples, the 500, all seen the bodily resurrected Christ not long after Jesus had risen. But Paul, he was untimely. He was later. Paul was actually persecuting those that had already seen the resurrected Christ. Until one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus met him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And that encounter with Jesus changed Paul's life. And so untimely born, some also believe, is a play on words that Paul refers to the time it took him. That it refers to the fact that Paul came late to the party. That with Paul, there there was a lag in his belief. That by the time Paul believed, the disciples were already all in. They already had it all figured out. And maybe you're looking around this morning and you're looking around thinking everybody seems to have it all figured out and I don't. Peter had 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 breakfast with Jesus and been restored after his denial. James, Jesus' brother, had finally realized Jesus was everything whom he said he was. But where's Paul? Paul at that point was still Saul. He was still out there persecuting the very people he would go on to tell the church in Corinth to listen to. Paul's story not only points to the resurrection having happened through his transformed life, but also points to the fact that power of the resurrection does not diminish over time. Paul's story is one that tells us that it's okay to be late to the party, that it's okay to be untimely. It's okay to need to, to time to wrestle and to ask questions and to get lost in the maze sometimes. But what we are reminding ourselves today is that the power of the creed in our passage today over the past 2,000 years has not diminished or disintegrated. The power of the creed in our passage today that some of you encountered 20 years ago or 10 years ago or two years ago, hold fast to it. And the power of the creed in our passage can still change your life, even if you spent years of your life hating this very creed. Church's life throws us around with illnesses and sickness and fear and loneliness and loss. The resurrection means that there is a place in which we can remain standing. Beneath our anxiety, there is a foundation that cannot be shaken. There is a a truth that cannot be altered. The ground of the future has already been laid, not because of the words in a creed, but because of a person who has risen. And it is he who not only makes truth true and carries truth across time from one generation to the next, but he who makes truth good and beautiful and kind. 
And so as you come to communion this morning, as we come as the church, maybe even if you're coming and you're coming for the very first time, consider for yourself what it means that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Today, would you make Jesus your truth? He whom generations have believed to be, for generations have believed to be timeless, might just be for you today, timely. Let's pray. God, we God, we know God that we come with our hurts our presence and hurts that are past. And yet, God, you tell us that we we cannot do this alone. God, your word, it points us to one another. To say, look at her faith. Look at his faith. Look at their story. Look what they have worked through. Come out the other side. God, I pray that we would not be a people that are lonely, alone. God, may we be in each other's homes. May we be in each other's lives. God, I pray that we will build one another up. God, that we will point one another to the foundation that is sure. That God's love for us was proven on the cross and was vindicated through the resurrection. That we are yours. And that the future, the foundation for our future has been laid. God, help us to believe this morning, I pray. God, as we come to the bread, which symbolizes Christ's body given for us, as we come to the blood, which symbolizes Christ's blood shed for our sins, God, I pray, God, that you will be profoundly present in this room, that you will be meeting your people, that you will be ministering to your people. Do that now, I pray, in your name. Amen. Come as you're ready.